Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Today, as the 50th anniversary of Muhammad Ali versus Al Blue Lewis at Crow Park approaches, we are joined by the man who wrote the book on the subject 20 years ago, Mr. Dave Hannigan. He followed up 2002's The Big Fight with drama in the Bahamas in 2016 about Ali's final fight against Trevor Berwick. The collection is now a trilogy with the release of 15 Rounds in the Wilderness, which focuses on what Ali did next. The book takes in Ali's escapades between 82 and 96 as his health declines, but his wit remains intact. It's a brilliant read as Ali seemed to fit more adventure into each month than the average man does in a lifetime. But it's devastating too, particularly as Dave details almost drip by drip how he suddenly became an old man in his 40s after fighting on for far too long. Dave, welcome to the show. You've previously said that writing about Ali is like entering into a rabbit hole. Have you emerged from it yet with the release of the third book? Yes, I think I'm out of the rabbit hole now, and I may be out of it for good. Uh, I think three books is enough on Ali, uh, but it's always tremendous fun when you're researching Ali. The big thing is, and, and you'll know this yourself, you get to read so many good sports writers who wrote about him, and you get, you know, it's such a pleasure to see what other great writers wrote about him back in the day, and you learn from that, and you, you know, it's just a wonderful way to research. Um, in this book, there's there's a, a writer called Phil Berger, who was in New York, big in New York in the 80s, who died very young, whose work, I, I have an anthology of his work, and, and he I've quoted him a couple of times in this, kind of a forgotten boxing writer, brilliant, brilliant stuff about boxing in the 80s. Just Phil Berger is his name. Look it up, probably find it on Amazon. Uh, he's got a couple of boxing books. Great, great writer. I think I've got a couple of his books in my shopping cart on Amazon, and I've yet to click uh Boy, get them over to me. But maybe, yeah, uh, maybe it's time now. Yeah, like some of the eighties and seventies guys who followed Ali around were, you know, all time greats. I see you've quoted from, you know, boxing writers from. But one that springs to mind is Jack Newfield, I suppose, about the the stuff with King. And uh, there was a great quote from Jack Newfield: "If a boxing, uh, if somebody wanted to make documentaries about everything that's wrong with boxing, attend one of these shows that Ali ended up going along to, you know, in." in the early 80s as his health was declining and he's showing up to be kind of a star attraction as six or seven fights of just absolute dross play out in front of him. Yeah, Don King, you know, the way the book is written, it's episodic. So it's a, a kind of 
uh, episode by episode through year by year. And in one episode, Don King or Ali will be suing Don King for money that he owes him. And then in the next episode, a year later, Don King will be parading him out, mm. you know, lending his glitter and glamour to a terrible, I think Jack Newfield called it the worst heavyweight card in history. And it was to do with MLK, uh, Martin Luther King's um, national holiday for the first time. It was promoting MLK's first national holiday here in America. And... Um, he put together this powerless night of heavyweight boxing, but Ali sparred actually with some of the contestants before in the build up to the fight. And it was all about selling it. But while he tells you about Ali is one minute he's in court, you know, suing a guy. The next minute he's working for the same guy, you know, and hanging out with him. And so, so Ali's not, Ali's very contradictory. One minute he's friends with somebody, the next minute he might be their enemy. Although I don't think he was that many people's enemies. He tended to stay friends with people, even though they did him wrong, he'd forget it very quickly. The Ali we encounter in your book is post his boxing career. We've, uh, we've been through the, the highs and lows of his, of his in-ring career. And now he is this sort of figure who's carted out at events around the world. He gets involved in some kind of dubious and failed ventures exhibition fights a couple of freak shows i guess you call them but he's a world figure as well and he just appears in this in your book to be just a really really sweet guy at this stage whose health is on the decline but he his main motivation in life is to look after children look after people in poverty look after the hungry and just be this great ambassador for for himself and for good causes Absolutely. And, you know, when it, the thing that attracted to me, attracted me to this book were, or to the subject was when I was finishing drama in the Bahamas, I came across a story of him um, going to the Middle East to fight exhibition fights 11 months later. And he actually didn't sell out and they cancelled one of the fights because there wasn't enough interest. And I thought it was really sad, kind of tawdry postscript to his career. And then you get into the 80s and you see like, as you just discussed, he's involved in dodgy businesses. He's involved with dodgy characters who are taking advantage of him. But then you see him turning up in places, just touching people. And it's kind of like, if I touch a star, will I twinkle too? He, you know, sprinkles stardust on people. He goes to schools. He goes to prisons. Um, he, he literally will be driving along in his car and he'll see a group of, of, of youths standing by the side of the street in, in South Bend, Indiana, actually uh, in the Midwest, and he gets out to start sparring with the kids. And that kind of stuff, when when I read that and, you know, found out these stories, it's like he is so different from the modern athlete, you know, cordoned off with security and the velvet rope and bodyguards and stuff. This guy would literally go anywhere, talk to anybody. If you said hi to Ali, you might end up in his company for the rest of the day. You'd end up, you know, two students were in a lobby. They went up to him to get a picture and they end up in his hotel room watching basketball for the night with them. And then he brings them to a press conference with him. He just, he loved the oxygen of, of other people. You know, other people provided oxygen to him, kids in particular. You know, there, there's a lot. The big problem in writing this book is I, I didn't want all the, you know, I didn't want the episodes to all seem the same. So I had to pick and choose which visit to the children's yeah. hospital that I would put in and leave out that one and, you know, put in this one, leave out that one kind of thing. But it really, you know, the, the cliche is always the people's champ. He really loved people and he loved interacting with people. And, you know, it, he caused mayhem, you know, wherever he went. And he loved that. Like he got off on the fact that I am going to stop the traffic and everybody is going to, you know, whirl around me. And he loved it. And even as his health declines and he's not, fast talking and he's not as witty as perhaps as he used to be 
He still loves touching people. Even just he'll pull off a magic trick without even speaking. And you know that whoever is in the room when that happens, that's the their memory for life of the moment that they were touched by Ali. Yeah, magic figures very heavily, particularly in the first first half of the book. He appears to just find absolute great joy. And there could be an entire press conference and world celebrities are up the front. And there's one passage, Muhammad Ali is out in the lobby performing magic tricks for anyone who walks by and wants to, wants to get involved. And, and that's the thing, like he's doing it at a, a Rudolph Valentino fashion show where all the you know celebs are. And next minute he's doing it on a prison in the rooftop prison yard in, in a place in California. You know, he gets thrown out of the British Society of Magicians <laughs> because he yeah. goes on British TV and he explains how he does how he does the magic. And even later in one of the final episodes, when he meets Castro in Cuba, uh, Castro is fascinated by the fact Ali can barely talk by then. It's 96. Uh, but Castro is fascinated by the fact that Ali can make a handkerchief disappear, which is his go-to trick. And again, it happens so often that I had to kind of pick and choose. <laughs> There's yeah, probably too much magic. Yeah. There's too much magic in the book as it is, but I had to pick and choose which episodes I would put in, you know, which ones I thought were more interesting than others. We actually had a previous guest, uh, Tom Loeffler, who was the Klitschko's promoter, and he told us that the first time Vladimir Klitschko uh, met Muhammad Ali, they bonded over. Vla- Vladimir was shown a magic, and Ali, of, of course, was all ears, and they became great friends based on their mutual love of magic. So, uh, yeah, I guess it continued until, you know, closer to the end. Oh no, the magic, the magic was a constant. And, and as I said, it, it even became a form of, of communication for him. You know, he couldn't speak, he couldn't deliver the, the great one-liners that he's famous for, but he would do the magic trick and he would probably, you know, he could pull that off without speaking, even as the Parkinson's was really kind of debilitating him as the years went on. Now, Dave, obviously we know that Muhammad Ali is probably the most written about sports figure in history. Even just looking over to my right, apart from the uh, the books you've written yourself, I see. I have books here by David Remnick on them, Norman Mailer on the fight, uh, the, the Rumble in the Jungle. I've two copies for some reason of the Soul of a Butterfly, but Norman Giller recently put out the Ali files about each and every fight. There's Muhammad Ali by Howard Bingham, Thomas Houser's Muhammad Ali, Life and Times. There's the greatest, I think he was involved in that himself. And there's tons of others. I think I saw in a different interview you did, you said there's up to 15 or 16,000, or was it? Was they, was they out by a decimal point? But there's, there are thousands of works based on Muhammad Ali out there. So what was it that inspired you to um, to say, I'm going to give this a go as well? I, I'd say, like, as somebody you know with, with the bookshelf, like your own, with all of the all of the major Ali works on it. And um, I wrote Jamin of Hammonds in 2016. And then Jonathan Igg's book came out in 2017, I think, the masterful kind of overview of his career, which is a great book. But he barely touches upon the 80s and the 90s. The, the stuff that I wanted to, the stuff that I I had started, you know, researching after I finished Drama in the Bahamas, he I doesn't touch upon that. And Thomas Hauser's book, which I, and I think those are the two, those are the two great books. Remnick's book is a good book as well, but that's kind of limited in scope. Uh, but Hauser's, you know, Hauser's book ends, I think it comes out in 1991 or 92. So that book ends there. And again, he has some stuff about the 80s, but not, you know, not a lot. So I, I figured that this was an untouched area because obviously with the fights, the fights are so fascinating. The 60s and 70s are so big that, you know, the 80s are kind of, you know, often forgotten about. And I felt yeah. that this was a neglected corner of his life because, you know, I, I, and again, I thought I knew a lot about him, but then you get into it and you'd be like, 
One minute he's selling cologne. Next minute he's at a convention in Miami manning a chocolate chip cookie stall. You know, he's he's opening a... Hey, he's careful, opening those, a, careful those cookies. If he eats one, he'll eat them all. Yeah, <laughs> A rotisserie chicken. He's selling rotisserie chicken, powdered milk. You know, there's there's so much stuff. And again, what what's fascinating is, you know, when when you research the pair, when when you read the book, I think one minute you might think, oh, this is kind of sad. He's coming across as kind of pathetic, and the next minute he's like in Pakistan or Sudan, or you know, he's basically or causing havoc in London. You know, you forget that he is still a global star. He is the most famous athlete on earth even at that point, because everywhere he goes, you know, in, in the you know third world, the underdeveloped world, he causes absolute havoc there too. Yeah. And th- there is, there is sometimes a, like, it's hard to get the connection between you see him boast. He's telling people back in America, he goes, oh, I'm flying over to Africa now. I'm flying over to Asia. And there's going to be 3 million people lying in the streets as I come out off at the airport. But then sometimes he is struggling to sell out these venues. And like you said earlier on, one of his exhibition nights was cancelled. I think he was supposed to fight like multiple times. One of them was cancelled because, as the promoter said, um, for a guy, for a guy this great, it, it wouldn't do him any justice to fight in front of you know barely any crowd. Which you know reminds me of some modern fights that take place. But yeah, I suppose was he as famous as he thought he was, or, or I suppose he was. He was able to fight. I think he world. was because. I, I think what we always have to differentiate with Ali and his fame and say like the more modern celebrity like Tiger Woods or Jordan or LeBron or Messi is like there was, there was no sportswear company promoting Ali. You know what I mean? Like Michael Jordan, even people who weren't into basketball in Ireland in the 90s knew who Michael Jordan was because of Nike. You know, uh, Tiger Woods was bigger than golf again because he was he was a commercial presence. He was a commercial juggernaut. Ali was not that. And yeah, he was not. He didn't always have the impact that that he, you know, that he would tell the press in America that he's going to have. But he was still going to these places. And there's a story of one of the trips to China. Uh, and one of his one of his traveling party tells the tale of Ali. Um, they stop by the side of the road and a woman, an old woman wanders out of a paddy field and she sees Ali. And obviously she can't speak English. And then she suddenly puts her fists up to fight because she recognizes who he is, you know. And, and that was China where boxing had been illegal uh, for decades uh, under the communists before, I think, 79 or 80, 85 or something, they made it legal again. So, you know, if you can go into China behind closed doors and get that impact on, on somebody. And the other thing is, what I love about Ali is he's willing to take the chance of embarrassing himself. You know, he's willing to do a thing that might not work and might make him look foolish. He doesn't care. You know, he he hasn't always worried about the consequences of, of a misstep. You know, he's in Tehran. He's in Baghdad trying to get American hostages released before the first um, the first Gulf War. You know, the American government told him not to go there. He goes against them. So he really is, you know, he's quite brave. And even, and I think somebody told me this when I was, it was actually Bernadette Devlin, the, the, from, from uh, the, the former MP, uh, Bernadette Devlin, the civil rights campaigner, uh, made the point to me when I was talking to her many years ago about the Ali in Dublin stuff. She yeah. said, like, the bravery of Ali in a debilitated condition to go out in public and show himself and, and to be out there still, you know, not ashamed of the, of the physical travails that he had in the weakened condition. There was something tremendously courageous about that. And that in particular, I think, comes across in the second half of this book because he really is not, he's a shadow of himself 
but he's not holding back. His itinerary, his travel itinerary is ridiculous. The ambitions he has to go places are really lofty. Yeah, like I said in the intro, he has more he has more adventure in his in, in an average month than most people have in their entire lives. Why do you think he still had that draw to to meet people, to go places as you know, as as his health, I guess, started to malfunction uh terribly. And he'd he'd already lived a life and and he'd uh you know he'd been through divorce, a new marriage. There's far more attractions at home, I I think, but not for Ali. No, I, I think there was even, you know, when you go back to Early Ali in Rome at the Olympics at the very start of his career, I think there's a curiosity about him. You know, there's a curiosity. He has a great natural curiosity um, and a willingness to just go places. And, you know, the, the story there about when they're promoting Thomas Hauser's book and he's in a bookshop in Leeds and a couple of Muslims come in and say, do you want to come and see the mosque or mosque? which is, you know, in a different part of Leeds, and he just gets in a car with them, doesn't tell anybody, mm. and disappears. And you're like, who else in the world would do that? And he just, it was for no other reason than, we have a mosque, would you like to come see it? Of course he would. You know, that curiosity and that willingness to, I guess it may also be a weakness that he's willing to be led, but that story ends with him, you know, going to the mosque, and then hours later, when his entourage is frantically looking for him, the Muslim who had brought him to the mosque, drive him to Nottingham for his next appearance on the book tour, you know, which is just, I don't think you can see that happening with Ronaldo or or LeBron James during a personal appearance. They'd be waylaid like that. But that's the magic of him. You know, who else would end up in these situations? I, I, and I think that's, you know, I often say to people like, it's an amazing thing when one minute he's laying a wreath on the grave of the Ayatollah Khomeini in Tehran. And the next minute, he's in an elementary school classroom in Florida doing magic tricks for the kids, you know? Like, that's the kind of the two sides of him. Who else in the world would end up in these places? Yeah, or he's in, you know, he's sitting there with Donald Trump at a an awards gig, I think, for from Ellis Island, you know, and previously he's been meeting with the leaders of Hezbollah over in, yeah. you know, in the Middle East, and it's... Yeah, it's a wacky world tour he's been on for sure. And I guess has has nobody really taught to sit down and document it? I guess everybody who starts out or who has a journalistic enterprise or, you know, wants to do a podcast or a documentary, you want to find a gap in the market. You want to find something untapped. And I guess once you realize this hasn't really been done before, you were thinking, I've hit pay dirt here. And I'm sure you had some maybe research done from the previous books, particularly Drama in the Bahamas. And he said, right, I may as well not let this go to waste. No, I, I had started fooling around with this like after Jam in the Bahamas. And then I I couldn't figure out a format for it. And I put it away. And then I wrote a book called Boy Wonder about my childhood. And then I wrote a kind of history, serious history book called Barbara University, which took me two and a half years and was a lot of German names. And was incredibly tough to write. And then I'm like, I got to go back to the alley thing because that's, <laughs> that's much more... That's much more fun. Uh, and I, I I then actually I read a book called 150 Glimpses of the Beatles by Craig Brown. I don't even like the Beatles. I don't know why I read a review of it and it caught my eye. And I read it and it was an episodic history of the Beatles. Uh, not chronological. It was chronological, but it wasn't kind of dated quite like mine. And I just read that and I'm like, that's actually the way to cover this period in Ali's life. Because all the stories are so different. You know, like he's literally... I'll tell the story of the forklift driver, Perry Holloway, who lives in Louisville and always drives past Ali's mother's house in the hope he'll see Ali. One day he gets out and he sees a black uh, a black man standing outside the house and says, could you tell me which house is Muhammad Ali's? 
and, and he turns around and it's Muhammad Ali. And, <laughs> and then he spends 15 minutes with him. And, you know, his life is t- it's just a small little story, but it's a simple. And then, you know, you move on from there to tell Ali with Nelson Mandela, you know, or as you say, yeah. with Donald Trump and major figures from, from the world, yet also in, encounters with little people that I love. Like, I, I love the, the small, you know, the encounters with ordinary people, like, you know, and, and I found a lot of these in local newspapers, American. I mean, this is a very sad thing about journalism today, but like there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of American small local town newspapers in America, most of which I think are gone or being subsumed into larger newspapers. And all of them would have these little nuggets of like Ali turned up at the window of Wendy's restaurant and ordered ordered a sandwich, you know, and you yeah. just go. That's magic. You know, that's just a little little tiny story and you just pick it up out of these. And in the back of the book, I list all of the newspapers and lots of them aren't there anymore. And they're, you know, they were a wonderful resource in terms of finding out when he went. Because when Ali went somewhere obscure, that was the biggest thing that happened in that yeah, town absolutely. that year. And, and you know, so that was, a, a, and it was a lovely story about him and, and Tony Hunsaker, the first man he fought as a professional. Uh, and he goes to Tony Hunsaker's um, retirement uh, Tony Hunsaker was a cop and his retirement party Ali turns up at that and then there's a beautiful bridge down there in West Virginia and he uh Tony closes the bridge for the day so Ali can walk across the bridge <laughs> and it's just like what a wonderful poetic kind of you know symmetry these these two men fought Ali's first fight as a pro when he was an 18 year old kid and Tony was a journeyman who was also a cop uh, as a full-time his full-time job and then they meet you know, 50 odd years later, it's just magic, you know? Yeah, it's it's absolutely like a life of a dignitary almost, but uh, a man of the people as well, comfortable with uh, every every manner of being. Uh, they, I, I suppose as well, it is helpful that every newspaper did document wherever Ali went. And like you say, when he was in town, it was the biggest day in that town's 50 year history. Near, like, And we're talking about, you know, Ali coming to Dublin. You you wrote about it 20 years ago now, I'm sure it's hard to believe. And it's... Uh, coming up on 50 years ago now. And it's, you know, 1972, he fought multiple times. He fought in, um, I think he fought Mac Foster in Japan in April, George Chavallo in Canada in May, Jerry Quarry, Vegas in June, Blue Lewis, Crow Park in July. He was back in, you know, Madison Square Garden for Floyd Patterson in September and Lake Tahoe for Bob Foster in November. So like he, he was all around the world, Jakarta, I think the following year. And, you know, he, he fought all over. The, he kept, you kept up the world tour, but like you say, like you say, when he went somewhere, it was documented, and I guess so by so many journalists who always got some colorful copy, and it probably always made it onto page one. How much? How much time did you spend, like searching old newspapers? How did you go? How did you do well, that? Local, the, local libraries. A, well, it, it, this is the difference. Twenty years ago, when I uh, when I wrote the big fight, it was still like using microfiche in the library, and you know, uh, getting getting people to go to the National Archives in Dublin to help me out. I remember back then, but. Now there's a wonderful website called newspapers.com, uh, which is a subscription website that has basically every local newspaper in America in its archives. And so what I would literally do is I would go, you know, 1982, set up the month of January 1982 and find out, find every Muhammad Ali story from January 1982. 
then go to February 1980. It's actually, it doesn't, it's not that much work. You just do it month by month. And, you know, you find stories that are not that interesting. You find stories that are interesting that you can't quite stand up. And then you find stories that you're like, okay, now I'm going to find another story to support, to explain, you know, to flesh that out. And then I look in a couple of the Ali books, is there a reference to this event and find out where Ali was. And, and so you kind of flesh it out like that. So the newsreppers.com was an incredible resource in terms of, and the great thing about, as opposed to 1972, when it was hard to get stuff on film about Ali, I got one, one person in New York sent me the full Al Blue Lewis and Ali fight and the board file to commercial that Ali filmed. It's on YouTube now. Uh, but back then I had to get that on a VHS from somebody. Uh, but for this period, 82 to 96, there's lots of stuff on YouTube. Like I talk about Ali being on, on Wogan, the chat show Wogan. You can watch that on YouTube. I talk about him being on Arsenio Hall's chat show with Sugar Ray Leonard and, and Mike Tyson uh, and David Letterman. He's on the David Letterman show. He's terrible. He looks awful. He sounds terrible. It's really, and he's being manipulated at the time by this evil lawyer dude called Richard Hirschfeld. And um, he really, you know, but my point is you can see a lot of that stuff. So you can back up the research by finding footage and even finding photographs of that period. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have a look at this uh, this fight in Crow Park 50 years ago now. It's hard hard to believe almost 50 years ago, but um, I guess it does it does look its age when you look at it. Crow Park is a different place. Ireland is a different place. And uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't sell it out. But but uh, what a moment, I suppose, for Irish sport and history. You know, the, the thing about this is that whenever I talk about the big fight and, and Ali fighting Abdul Lewis is, it's like Buddy Sugu, the, the circus strongman who put it together. It was kind of a figure of fun. And, and like when I would talk, I interviewed a lot of people for that book who were still alive, you know, who had been involved. And they kind of make fun of Buddy and, you know, mock him. And he was a kind of a caricature. Jeez, when you look at it, like he brought Ali to Dublin. Like the, resi- the all the all the fights you listed there when you mentioned it earlier, he brought Ali to Dublin when Ali had not yet fought, you know, the rumble in the jungle, the thriller in Manila. Like Ali hadn't even yet reached the second half of, of the of the great years of his career. Uh, so like it wasn't like a washed up has been Ali. It was interim Ali in between the two phases of his career, if you want to talk. So mm. that was an incredible achievement. And, you know, you talk about the Ireland, how different Ireland was. Uh, Rock Brenner, Yul Brenner's son, Rock, who, who had went to Trinity and he was in Ali's entourage. So he knew Dublin quite well. And, and I remember him telling me at the time, that just six months before uh, Ali, it was like 1971, not 72, uh, late 71, there was still a woman off Grafton Street who had a cow and would sell milk out of her house off Grafton Street. You know, that, mm. and, and Yol Brenner lived in, in, lived in Dublin in the 60s. So, you know, I, I'm willing to believe him about that. But that's how different the country was back in, in, in 1971, 1972. But it was, you know, it was an incredible achievement by Buddy Considering the communications in the world then, like how big the world was, how difficult it was to communicate with other parts of the world, for him to get Ali, uh, him and Harold Conrad, Ali's promoter slash publicist, it was, it was you know, remarkable, remarkable feat, really, of logistics and planning. And it wasn't the best run event, and it was funny, and it was, you know, madcap and sort of a circus atmosphere. But it was, at, you know... As I always say, Dublin is on Ali's resume. Like Dublin yeah. is on Ali, the most famous resume in all of boxing. And there's Crow Park in Dublin. Uh-huh. You know, we we have our footnote in that, you know. 
did um did Ali make a big deal prior to arriving in Ireland of his Irish roots? Obviously, Abe Grady from County Clare was it his great grandfather on his on his mother's side? I believe. On his mother's side, yeah. yeah. But it was it. See, this is a bit a bit dubious because, or it's a bit odd because, yeah, and you know, there's a little bit of this in fifteen rounds as well. Ali often spoke out of both sides of his mouth, and he was capable of contradicting himself. He was not a big fan of his Irishness. Um, and it had been, it had come up before 1972. He was not a big fan of his Irishness, as a lot of African Americans weren't, because the white side of the family was often um, there because of rape or taking, you know, people, uh, the white masters raping slave women kind of thing. Now, I don't think that is the case in the Ali family tree, by the way, but because of that, he was not a big fan of the white side of his family at that point. Remember, he was often still preaching the white man is the devil stuff in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, So he wasn't a huge fan of it, even when he was in Dublin in 72. Uh, Later, I think he came more, as his position softened on the racial stuff, he became more around to that. Yeah, because I I seem to remember a Playboy interview from the 70s, and I think he was asked, what would you do if your daughter brought home a white man? I think he said, I'd kill her or something like that. It comes off the top of my head. Um, But yeah, there was, he was, Different man back then in the seventies to the to the eighties, but like Al, like how, so you've seen the you've seen the full copy of Ablu Lewis. I assume more than more than most people. I yeah, love it. I was watching it there last year, and I can see Luke Kelly in the in the ring, you know, sing, singing as Ali as Ali makes his entrance. It's just marvelous stuff. It's classic, and like the stuff like John Huston, uh, John Huston had premieres his movie Fat City, a great boxing movie, Fat City, mm. very underrated boxing movie. But John Huston, the great director, has that, brings Ali and Albert Lewis, Albert Lewis and their entourages to, to the cinema in Dublin and shows them the movie and, and Ali falls asleep during the movie. Yeah. John Huston is so proud. John Huston loved boxing. He boxed himself as a, as a young man and he's loved boxing, wants to show Ali and Ali falls asleep. But Albert Lewis, I mean, I went to see, uh, Abu Lewis died a few years ago, um, but I went to see him in Detroit and it was very, he was a lovely man. I mean, he, he was a convicted murderer, convicted manslaughter, convicted of manslaughter for killing somebody on the street in, in Detroit. But uh, he was, he was a reformed character, obviously, by the time I met him. But I went to meet him in this, in his doctor's office or his chiropodist's office, actually, a man called Stuart Kirschenbaum, who's the boxing commissioner in, in Michigan or was the boxing commissioner, another fantastic person. So Stuart, Dr. Stuart Kirschenbaum set it up and I went to meet Abel Lewis and it was the proudest, you know, he was so proud of that. That was his day in the sun, you know, that, that was, the night. he knew Ali, he'd sparred with Ali, but that night he fought Ali in Dublin, right? Like that was his night in the limelight. That was the pinnacle of his career. And he loved the fact that I had tracked him down and wanted to speak to him about it. Um, and you know, just a lovely, lovely character who was really, you know, I loved. He came back to Dublin later when he was a trainer. He was a trainer later, and he came back to Dublin in the late nineties or early two thousands for one of those events in the Point. Uh, right. So he, you know, so he had come back to Dublin, and he, and even when we spoke, he was like, "I got to get back." Actually, it would have been the nineties because I, I spoke to him in two thousand and one. Uh, yeah, late two thousand and one. So he. He would have come back in the in the late nineties uh, with with, a, one of, with one of his fighters, but he really lovely man who loved loved Ireland and was and was bemused by Ireland. You know, like he'd never seen a cow before. <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. was, he was fascinated by the udders on the cow. You know, when he, when he was in Dublin. 
Yeah, we, we've we've had a similar situation with previous guests on the podcast. We had a guy called Mike Colbert. He's the only Irish guy to have fought Roberto Duran. And he's remembered as the last guy who got knocked out by Roberto Duran. Uh, Duran didn't knock anybody out any, after that. But he that's his nearly claim to fame. And he's proud of it because he says, well, you know, he knocked out a hell of a lot of people. And I was the last of them. And then there's, uh, you know, with Peter McNeely on, remembered really only for his fight with Mike Tyson after he was uh, released from prison. And you know, you've made it. If you're sharing a ring with these people, you've made it. And, uh, you know, whatever whatever else you achieve. I think Al Blue Lewis, though, was, was a decent caliber fighter. And obviously he comes in a run of competitive fights for Ali there. We're like, we're looking at, you know, Chivalu, Quarry, then Lewis, all in a couple of months. And and uh, what? how does Ali's performance rate in terms of, you know, where he was at in his career against Al Blue Lewis? Like, did he, did he give the Dublin crowd, you know, much to get excited about? I don't think he did. I think it was a, I mean, I haven't watched it for years, but it was a lackluster, lackluster fight. He was, he actually was dying to pee from most of the fights. I think he needed, he needed to get out of there in a hurry for that reason. He had a cold, um, but Lulus was a, was a dangerous opponent. Um, and, uh, you know, when I spoke to people who were involved in boxing at that time about that, they said like, if Abu Lewis had better management, and you know, better luck. He could have actually done more with his career because that came into it. And also, it was a golden age of heavyweights. I mean, you know, that was a tough time. Like Chivalo was a, was a great fighter, but you know, you could he could never compete. He wasn't at the level of of Frazier and Foreman and Ali. You know, there were some greats there at that time. Yeah, I guess a lot of that era kind of boxing the, in the time before the cruiserweight division existed. A lot of them will be. Absolutely, will be world champions in this day and age. Uh, might struggle against the giant heavyweights at this time, but yeah, the, the competition was absolutely fierce at the time, and which I suppose makes Ali's achievements all the all the greater. He lost the following year after the after fighting in Dublin to Kenny Norton, but after getting his jaw broken, and then he went five years undefeated, of course, with so many you know wonderful memories in there. Like well, I say, memories, but um, like Rumble in the Jungle, Trilla Manila, and all sorts of stuff thrown in there as well. But he obviously. Fought on too long, as you detailed in drama in the Bahamas. Yeah, and that's the, the you know when you're listening to all those fights, you're like they're no joke. Like they're, no. he was fighting once in he needed the money in '72, if I remember correctly. He was struggling a bit for money because obviously all the years he'd been out of the ring because of the Vietnam stuff, and he really needed money. He was fighting almost once a month, and you know when when you look back or when you when you see then what happened to him in the '80s and how quickly he went downhill. You know, and you think back to people like Ferdy, Dr. Ferdy Pacheco pointing out, you know, he needed to stop and Pacheco walked away because he wanted Ali to stop in the mid-70s and said he shouldn't be fighting anymore. And yet he keeps going and keeps going to 81. And then even even in retirement, like there was those fights in the Middle East, then there's he fights Dave Semenko in an exhibition. And Tell us about Dave Semenko. Dave Semenko was the NHL enforcer. You know, the goon in ice hockey, the goon is the man whose job it is to protect the star player. So if you put a hit on our star player, then the goon is going to come and, and take you out. And Dave Semenko was Wayne Gretzky's enforcer. So he was a, a you know tremendously tough, hard-nosed kind of character. And Ali went to fight him in, in Edmonton. Uh, and again, like there's this willingness of Ali to do stuff. Like he will just turn up the things if half the time when I tell, tell stories in this book, half the time it's like when I'm trying to figure out why he did it, I keep coming back to one thing. He was invited. <laughs> he was asked. Yeah. So he decided he'd go and he would do it. He fights Dave Semenko. You know, it's an embarrassing kind of, but you, you wonder even those things like took a few punches, 
probably nothing major, but I suppose when your brain is rattled that much for that long, it can help every single punch you take, even even in a kind of a jovial, half-joking contest like that. Yeah, I wonder, was it ever found out if that sort of lifestyle in the 80s, you know, made his condition degenerate more or made him get sicker quicker or become slower? Because there was, you have various descriptions throughout the book of, you know, he, I think at one stage it's his 43rd birthday and he turns to a woman beside him and says, I'm 49 today. And he's already showing alarming, uh, you know, slowing down. I'm not sure if he was joking in that encounter or whether it was. I just, and Hopefully. that's the thing, like, I just present it the way it is. But, yes. but there is there is definitely, um, I mean, what comes across in the, in, the, in the book is the deterioration. And a, a, the interesting thing to go back to the journalism stuff is like the local newspaper reporter who would have no axe to grind with Ali and would be thrilled that Ali's in his town would call it like they see it. And they would say, this guy shouldn't be here. Like, you know, some of them would write paper. Uh, reports for their paper saying it was kind of sad and he shouldn't have been there and why is he being pushed out to do this stuff and and they you know but then a couple of days later he could appear somewhere else and he'd be in much better shape and it would depend on how tired he was how much medication he had taken uh and then you know when you talk about do we know what the doctor said part of the storyline in this is that he's in the thrall of this weird uh, doctor from the old Yugoslavia, Dr. Medinica, who's a complete gangster who has this weird blood cleansing te- technique that he says is going to cure Ali. And Ali is a loyal patient of his for years, even though it's obvious the guy is a scam artist. He loses his medical license eventually. And Ali is a tremendously loyal person. He goes to court in Switzerland to testify on behalf of Medinica. And there's this wonderful um, moment where uh, one of the reporters at the courtroom says, are you st- are, are you the greatest? And Ali just goes, I used to be. And it's like this wonderful kind of, you know, sum up. but here he is in court. He can barely speak in the court in Switzerland. And he's testifying on behalf of Medinica's medical miracle technique. And his wife actually has to whisper his, his answers or has to translate his answers to the court because they can't hear him speak. His voice is so low. Man. So the medical stuff like that, and it, Another point in the book, he's flirting with going to Mexico City, you know, for this brain operation. Uh, and like a couple, there's only like a handful of people have had the operation and, uh, you know, several of them died on the operating table. And Ali is flirting with the idea of doing this. So he's kind of susceptible or vulnerable to medical gurus promising all sorts of stuff. And Medinica is one of the, he's one, there's, there's three or four really nasty people in the book who are manipulating and, and profiting from Ali. And Medinica is one of them. Well, but at the same time, Ali shows tremendous loyalty and it's it's something that characterizes him. And another man he showed loyalty to, and he went, uh, made a, a long journey, I think 3,000 miles, went on the stand from was uh, Ron Lipton, a former sparring partner from back in the 60s of some famous fighters, including uh, Reuben Carter. And is now a referee, he actually... He refereed the first Collins Eubank fight at Mill Street in '95, and uh, Ron Lipton's actually still on the go. He let a fight go recently, way too long. Um, let a fight Josie Vargas get, uh, you know, get badly stopped. His, the doctors actually stepped in on the ring and stopped it. But Ali stepped up and uh, testified for him. I think when he was up on a was it an assault or a manslaughter yeah. slaughter uh, charge or Lip, something? Lip, Lipton kids were kids, young men were menacing his neighborhood, and he went out there and he. He gave them what for. Yeah. Uh, but but the funny thing is in the court, you know, uh, Lipton's lawyer says Ali will Ali will uh, 
will be coming to testify and the prosecutor laughs and says, yeah, I'm sure he will. But he turns up. He turns up for people. You know, if you're if you're in with Ali, you stay. You know, he is he is good to you. And I mean, that's that's a great thing. And it's a fault in other ways, because people take advantage of it. But he will come. You know, he'll fly from California to Jersey to testify on behalf of a former sparring partner because he was a good guy and, and you know, they, they were friends. And if you were his friend, he would literally do anything for you. And that, again, then led, led some people who were not good friends to exploit the relationship and take him for money and use his name to sell products and, you know, just generally kind of bastardize his reputation a little bit. Yeah, he'll, he'll fly anywhere. I think that, that much is clear uh, for sure. It, well, he finishes up, uh, you finish up in the book kind of around 96. How much did it mean to him to uh, have a part in the opening ceremony of the uh, Atlanta Olympic Games? I, I think the Atlanta, like, where, you know, when I was trying to figure out the parameters for the book, like the Atlanta moment, I think is a big, mo- it's a landmark in his career because he, you know, if the year is 82, 80s, he's kind of in the wilderness a little bit, as I say in the book, and and the early 90s. After Atlanta, Ali changes, Ali's position in the American sports landscape changes. He becomes, as I, I used to describe him as like America's grandfather, you know, he became a beloved figure. He was not a beloved figure by many people. And even today, you still meet people, I still meet people, I work with people. Who who still do not you know forgive Ali for for not fighting in Vietnam, you know because their dad fought in Vietnam or something. Uh, so you know he he the Atlanta is a big moment. It's painful if you watch the video again. You see he's struggling up there, uh, but he gets through it. And then the great it, it was a surprise. It was a brilliant kept cigarette, but it really changes the perception of him. Uh, people are crying in the stadium. He's almost kind of like exposed and naked up there on the platform with the flame. And the flame, as I said, the, the flame is licking, it's blowing back on his arm. And for a moment, it looks like he might catch fire. But that struggle, the struggle, the dignity of the struggle in that moment, I think really, and America was watching, like that was an Olympics, the, all of America was watching. Uh, it was prime time on American TV. That changed him. Is the perception of him in America? He became a more beloved figure, I guess, because in that diminished state on their screens, it touched people. And time had passed as well. I mean, it had been, you know, more than more than whatever quarter of a century since since Viet since he had refused to fight in mm-hmm. Vietnam. So people, you know, the the old hatreds had dissipated a little bit. But there was a definite change in him in in, in how he was perceived. And then, as I briefly mentioned at the end, like when he dies. It's this kind of national outpouring of grief. And there's an, an imam, there's a rabbi, there's priests, there's a Republican senator, there's a Democratic president, you know, there's a Malcolm X's daughter. There's this wonderful ecumenical congregation up on the stage, a comedian, you know, yeah. everybody, you know, comes together and it showed his ability to unite people. He definitely became sort of, he stood for something a kind of a unifying force after 96. And that was organic. I mean, I don't think that was planned, but I, I think that's what happened, you know, for the last 20 years of his life. He he stood for for something, as I said, the, you know, the national grandfather, if you like. Absolutely. Now, Dave, now that you've finished your third book about Muhammad Ali, are you just going to dip in for a bit of uh, recreational reading about him now? Or are you going to leave, my, leave, leave it alone for a while? Or like, how are you going to stop yourself? Just, you know, having a little Google, oh, what was that Muhammad Ali up to in a... Uh, <laughs> September of 98 or whatever. 
The problem is whenever whenever you read something about Ali, you always find out something new and then it kind of pricks your interest. But I, I don't think um I think it's very hard to find anything that hasn't been hasn't been done before at this point. You know, he really I mean, it's exhaustive. Um, you know, it's it's an exhaustive subject. But I don't know. I I love I love writing about him because because he's a mess of contradictions and he's complex and he's controversial and he says one thing one day and another thing the next day. But you know, and that's what makes him more, so interesting. Like so many of our heroes today are bland. They don't stand for anything. They don't speak out. And he just says things and you know, and he goes places like. You know, the, the the stuff that I love there early in the book, he's in Handsworth, which is a tough part of Birmingham. And, uh, you know, he goes, again, he'll always go to the tough part of town. He'll always go to the neglected neighborhoods in the town. And he goes to Handsworth and he's like visiting factories and he's running around Edgbaston Reservoir with kids. And it's just fantastic stuff that nobody else does. So never say never with Ali, but I don't see, I don't see how I can milk one more, one more book out of this subject. Uh, never say never. I suppose Ali was a three-time champion. You've got, you've put in your three, but then he spent a decade hinting at a comeback. And sure, you never know. You've got plenty more time there to consider your next one. Dave Hannigan, it's been fantastic today. Uh, listen to you speak about your new book on Muhammad Ali. Um, and I really appreciate it. It's been, been great. Thank you very much, Kevin. Really appreciate having me on. Okay. Well, look, that was Dave Hannigan there. Thank you very much, Dave, for joining us. The book is called Muhammad Ali, 15 Rounds in the Wilderness and is available now from Pitch Publishing. Thanks very much for joining us this week on The Rocky Road and thanks once again to Dave. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.